Weird times, creepy crimes, and unexplained phenomena. If it's weird and it's in Florida, it's on the SoFlo Weird Show. Here's your hosts, weirdos Mia Lorenzo and Michelle McArdle. Welcome, weirdos. Thank you for joining us. My co-conspirator and weird contributor Michelle McArdle and I went on a recent road trip through Central Florida. It took us right back to our original SoFlo Weird Show mission, which is to venture out into this wild and wacky state to bring you strange stories, new discoveries, mythical legends, and twisted history. To give you a little setup, Michelle and I recorded the following opening in a walk-in closet at our Airbnb in Lakeland, Florida. This was honestly the best makeshift studio ever. We have a very interesting show today. We just got off the road from our SoFlo Weird Street Team adventure, which was really interesting. We hit, I don't know, Michelle, how many stops did we hit? I think like six stops. Well, let's see. We started out at the Child of the Sun campus in Lakeland, Florida, where we saw all the buildings that were built and developed by Frank Lloyd Wright. After that, I believe we went to go meet up with Rob Robinson um, to talk about legend tripping. And, and some and some really cool maybe day trips. The day after we visited with Rob, we did get to see that Charlie Smith, America's oldest man, and that is a controversial statement. <laughs> we will explain that later. And then that same day, we got to meet Erica Smith. Uh, no relation. <laughs> oh, yeah. At, I didn't even think of that. Erica Smith, right. <laughs> very common name. <laughs> but... Anyway, we got to go meet with Erica Smith, who works at Bach Tower Gardens. She does a little bit of everything there, but she was able to talk with us about the gardens and the tower and everything that Edward Bach has done as far as conservation and building his beautiful garden for everyone to experience and enjoy. And then on our very last day, we went to Homosassa to see the Monkey Island. The Monkey Island was... Kind of sad. I we were know. sad. We were so disappointed. In our opinion, the island should be a lot bigger. The monkeys just were so sad. They were just sitting in the tree. I with know. Their head well, down. okay. So there was about three monkeys. And to be honest with you, we got to the, there's like a restaurant right there. And I had always assumed that this island was further out in the water somewhere. Sitting out on the on the dock and looking out, it it just it really wasn't even that far. And it was such a small patch of island. I just felt like they just didn't have enough room to run around. There's some scraggly trees. And yeah, they looked a little sad. And we felt a little sad. That was a little disappointing and a little upsetting to me. I do want to give credit to Homosassa because I think that... There were lots of beautiful waterways, rolling hills, long, beautiful pastures, and it was a really lovely place to go. There was a fishing competition when they, we were there, and we went to this wonderful bar and grill called Crumps on the water. Yeah, that was amazing. And everybody <laughs> there was super friendly, so I'm not necessarily knocking Homosasa or anything like that. I just, from... A animal lover point of view yeah. feel that those monkeys need a lot more space. They need trees. I mean, they need to swing from tree to tree. Isn't that I, the thing yeah. that monkeys do? Yeah, They're they, swingers. They gotta do monkey stuff. I yeah, know. <laughs> I felt like they didn't have enough room to do monkey things. 
let's go back to Bach Tower because that's what this particular episode is going to be dedicated to our wonderful interview with Erica Smith of Bach Tower. What was your take on it? First of all, I was surprised it took so long for us to find a tower. We're following the GPS. We're looking for the directions, a turn here, a turn here. And you and I were both going, well, I don't see a tower. There's no tower here. So it's kind of hidden. Yeah, I was, I felt like we were on a lot of road and we were like, where is it? Right. But Erica did tell us that that was intentional, that uh, Edward Bach wanted you to experience the tower after you entered the gardens. Mm -hmm. And it's really beautiful to experience up close and personal. But I also appreciated that you had to walk through the gardens to get to the tower and experience them first. And there was plenty of opportunities to hear the bells ring. Mm -hmm. So hearing them ring as you're walking through the gardens is also a really nice experience. And then when you get there, you're kind of at like the apex of like what could arguably be considered Florida's only mountain. It's Oh, really, yeah, that was a beautiful sight. It's 200 feet above sea level, and then the tower itself is 200 feet. So when you're standing there on the hill, you can actually see all the, the rolling hills of orange groves and everything. It's a really beautiful sight. And then if you happen to be standing there while the bells are tolling in the tower behind you, it's really a magnificent experience. Hello, SoFlo weirdos. This is stop number three on our trip. We are in Lake Wales. We are at the beautiful Bach Tower Gardens. I am with Erica Smith. Erica, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, give us a little bit of background about what you do here at Bach Gardens. So I'm the business development director. And what that means is our team is really devoted to finding all the opportunities to make Bach Tower Gardens the best garden in America, if not in the world. And it is, right? <laughs> According to you, it is. Absolutely. It's gorgeous here. Okay. <laughs> so what we do is we make sure that we're communicating all of the wonderful things that Bach Tower Gardens has to offer. Um, I also work with the cafe team. So we're going to make sure that you're fed well when you're here at the gardens. And then we're going to make you stop by our gift shop, the shop at Bach, and take home all the beauty that Bach Tower Gardens has to offer. And it is magnificent. We, we have yet to walk around, but it looks absolutely beautiful. Even the drive-in is just gorgeous and the feel here. Explain where we are sitting right now. Okay, so we're actually at the entrance of our children's garden. It's called Hammock Hollow, and it's a three acres children's garden that's dedicated to really introducing children to nature. So when you walk in, you're going to see wonderful stones to climb on, a river walk that will help you cool off in a splash zone, <laughs> as well as musical instruments, art and craft projects, anything that really takes kids and introduces them to the wonder of Mother Nature. And that's what we want to do here at Bach Tower Gardens. We're also right in front of our outdoor kitchen and our kitchen garden. Yeah. And I noticed that. Did it say edible garden? I, I was noticing a sign right there. So, yes. so you cook with, well, not specifically. <laughs> she does everything. She even cooks. But uh, you actually use the ingredients, some some of the herbs and stuff from the so garden? So that okay. garden would be too small for us to use in the cafe because our okay. volume would be too large. But what we do use it for is our cooking classes ah, and our okay. culinary experiences. So if we were to use it for the cafe, we wouldn't have much of a garden because we would be harvesting it every day. Right. Okay. Got it. So that is um, what this area is 
really dedicated to. So this is the expansion area. In 2016, we made the largest expansion in Bach Tower Gardens history. And so we added in the Hammock Hollow Children's Garden, the Florida Wild Garden, and then the Edible Garden. And that was part of the expansion. And this expansion really brought Bach Tower Gardens to a new relevancy. And so that's what we wanted to do. We wanted people to be interested in our history, but also in our future. Before we go into who Edward Bach was, you said something about a Florida garden. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. So Bach Tower Gardens is a little different than some botanical gardens that you would have because most of the time there are display or landscape gardens. We're actually a nature preserve in a garden, if you can kind of oh, get your arms okay. around that. Mm -hmm. So the Florida Wild Garden um, shows you four unique ecosystems that we have here on the ridge. So you're actually on one of the highest points in Florida. It was an underwater reef, basically, oh, in cool. prehistoric times. So that's why it's so sandy here. So the plants and the wildlife that are here are unlike any in the world because this was kind of a protected prehistoric ecosystem. Wow. So when you go out into our gardens, you're going to see in the historic Olmstead Gardens, very manicured, tropical, beautiful gardens. But if you'll take a step off the path and go into our nature preserve, you're going to see what actual Florida ecosystems really are. So you're going to go through a pine savanna. You're going to go through a bog. You're going to go through a wetland prairie. And you're going to learn about how Florida is unique and different and beautiful and one of the most, you know, diverse yeah. ecosystems on the planet. Yeah. So um, Edward Bach preserve these lands. And that was important to him that we always preserve what this place looks like. So what Bach Tower Gardens is doing in 2021 is we have our rare plant conservation program. And they are working not only here at Bach Tower Gardens, but around Florida to protect some of Florida and the world's rarest plants. So what they are doing is actually going in and looking at, all right, we have progress kind of coming closer to these natural areas. What are the plants that could, you know, be extinct because of this encrosion, you know, urban encrosion? So they actually go out and collect seeds. And we have a seed bank here at Bach Tower Gardens with these rare plants so that if something should happen out in nature and those plants go extinct, we have the wow. seeds to, you know, regenerate those. Let's go into the roots of this and okay. explain to me who Ed Bach was and his purpose in building this garden and tower. Sure. So we're going to have to go way back to the yeah, turn of the right, century. Right, all right. right. So Edward Bach um, came over from the Netherlands when he was six years old. His family had kind of fallen on hard times and, you know, they moved to Brooklyn. They immigrated to Brooklyn. And at the time, you know, the family had servants in Europe. And so when they came to the United States, they didn't have any of that. And so he really had to teach his mom how to cook. He had to really... You know, and he liked to call it pulling it. He pulled himself up by his bootstraps. Right. Mm -hmm. And so as a child, he was a very, very interested in learning and education was very important. And he thought that you had three very distinct periods to your life. The first period was education. Mm -hmm. The second period was career. And the third period was giving back or philanthropy. Mm. So um, he talks about this in his book. He won the Pulitzer Prize mm -hmm. for his autobiography. Mm -hmm. But you see these very distinct stages in his life. He worked his way up through the journalism ranks and became the editor of the Ladies Home Journal. And that's very significant for American history because it had the largest readership of any magazine in the world. And so he really crafted the way Americans thought at that very 
very pivotal point in our history at that very turning point. Mm -hmm. And so through his editorship, he was really teaching Americans about things like women's health and women's health issues. He was very, very instrumental in the idea that every American should have a home. And the way that he did that is he was the very first editor to put, um, you know, house plans in the magazine and publish house plans. And it's interesting because the very first house plan that he put in the magazine was actually Frank Lloyd Wright. So there is a connection between these two great Americans. All right. (laughs) So that's our connector point. Uh But in his magazine, he he didn't want to talk down to the American housewife. He wanted Mm -hmm. to actually elevate her. Wow. Way ahead of his time. Way ahead of his time. And, you know, we can trace back lots of things. Um, If you remember at the turn of the century, the women would wear these really beautiful feathered hats, right? Yes. Yeah, that was a big... It was a big thing. It was a big thing. It actually decimated the American migratory bird. So what Eberbach did is he worked to get legislation passed that started the very first, um, you know, no more migratory bird hunting. And you couldn't have these feathered hats. And so that's one of the things that he really did change that Americans may not know about. Wow. I didn't know that either. Yeah. (laughs) So, all right. Eberbach is now the editor of Ladies Home Journal. He's making all these changes. And eventually he decides that it's time for him to retire. And so he had a winter home. He was a snowbird mm-hmm. and he would come and winter in this very beautiful community that's on, that is on the backside of our property called Mountain Lake. And every night he would climb up what is affectionately called Iron Mountain. Now it's not really a mountain. It's only right, 200 right, feet right. above it's sea level. It's a Florida mountain. <laughs> okay, you we'll know, take it. Just a hill. Right. And so he would come up and watch the sunset. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of things happening. And Florida was right on that land boom at that time. Yeah. And so all of this property that we're sitting in was going to be orange groves. And he didn't want that to happen to this beautiful area that he loved. So he purchased the original 13 acres and started to make this place a wonderful landscape garden. Because what he was recognizing is that Americans were becoming too electrified. All right. So think about that. It's, you know, 1910, 1915. He doesn't know what electrified (laughs) is going to be soon. So he wanted a place that he could give back a gift to the American people because they had given him so much. Mm -hmm. And so he, you know, bought the land and created the garden. And what he did is he went and found the best of the artisans of the time. And so our landscape architect is Frederick Law Olmsted Jr. Now, you may know that name because you've been to um, New York um, in the middle of Central Park, right? Yeah. His father actually created Central Park. (gasps) Oh, wow. So that's the connection point. Oh, wow. So Frederick Law Olmsted Jr. created our gardens. And when you walk around, you're going to actually get that feeling of what um, they were trying to create, a natural space that people could connect to nature and to each other. So he brought in the best landscape architect that he could. He went out and um, brought Milton Maderi in to create the tower. And we'll talk about the tower here in a second. He brought in Lee Lowry to do all of the stone carving. Mm. And Lee Lowry, um, you know, is a famous American stone carver. And you'll see his work throughout the United States. And then he brought in Samuel Yellen to do the um, metal work. And if you've been to New York to Rockefeller Center, you've seen Atlas. Yes, of course. That is Samuel Yellen's ah, sculpture. Yeah. So he brought in the best that American had to offer. And Boy, this is he what really he really did. He he got the A-list team <laughs> in, one, on the dream in team. one project. Exactly. <laughs> and this was his um, recommendation to them. He said, I don't care what you do as long as it's the best you have to give. Wow. He gave them a blank check. And can you imagine? That would never happen in 2021, no, no, right? No, not at all. A blank check to create whatever they wanted as long as it was the absolute best they had to offer. 
So the gardens were created first, and then the tower was like the centerpiece. And it took just two years to create the tower, which is kind of rare for that time because everything had to be shipped to Florida by trail, by rail. Mm -hmm. And then the bells that are at the very top of the tower, and we'll talk about that. um, Which we we heard just a second ago. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) They came from England, and they actually came into the port of Jacksonville. They couldn't come into the port of Miami. And then they were brought by rail car down to Lake Wales. And then a truck brought them the rest of the way up the mountain. So imagine it's, you know, it's 1928. There's not Google. There's not Uber. There's none of this stuff. And they still managed to create something to this day, 92 years later, that still delights people. I mean, that's pretty magical to think that one man could really leave that legacy. The Olmstead firm is very much dedicated to gardens should reflect the space that they are within. Right. So, you know, that's why you see very natural native plants within this garden. Mm-hmm. Frank Lloyd Wright did the same thing. He thought your house and yes. the style of your yes. home or your building should reflect the environment that it's in. Mm-hmm. So you see a lot of this. And there are, both of them were, you know, artists during the arts and crafts period. Right. So you see a lot of the reflection of what American architecture and art was going through. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people will say, oh, th- that beautiful tower is um, Art Nouveau or Art Deco. Right, right. Actually, it's not because Art Deco wasn't coined until the late 40s. And our tower was built in 1927, 28. Right. So it's actually... Um, neo-gothic. Ah, okay. Which means, you know, for the people, new people, right? So that's why you're seeing kind of this progression towards Art Deco. So we're kind of on the cusp of that. So I think the tower and the artisans and the ideas were really leading us into that period. So one of our visitors' favorite details about the Singing Tower is the Great Brass Door. And so the Great Brass Door is actually reposé, which means the artisan, Samuel Yellen, actually hammered from the backside the story of Genesis. So at the top of the door, you're going to see, you know, God created light. Mm -hmm. And then as you make your way down the panels, the very last panel is actually Adam and Eve being thrust from the garden. (laughs) So each one of the panels tells a different chapter from the book of Genesis. So the tower is neo-Gothic in style. It is made from Georgia marble and brown coquina. So around the tower, you're going to see wonderful carvings. And a lot of the carvings are native birds from Florida, as well as you're going to see, if you if you have an eagle eye, you'll be able to see at the very top, there are four eagles that surround the bell chamber. And then at the very top, the parapet, there are eight herons. And unfortunately, you can't see from the ground. They're sitting on nests. So Aww. it is a female, male, female, male around the top. And there's eight of them. So all of that was hand carved and um, by artisans here on property that were brought down from Philadelphia. So, um, you know, we are definitely a testament to architecture. Um, on the back side of the tower, you're going to see our famous sundial. And don't ask me to tell you how it works. <laughs> you're going to have to go on our web and look yeah, at the blog. That's fine. There's some calculations you have to do. But it was one of the most difficult things to create. And the reason why it's a, a sundial is that's how the bells were brought in. They were brought in through that back panel and then hoisted to the top of the tower. So the sundial will tell, um, you know, what time it is, but they had to bring in a mathematician oh. to actually make it 
accurate and make it, you know, Mm -hmm. feasible to be a a sundial. So, you know, walk around and see all these really lovely um, Art Nouveau kind of pieces and and architecture. And kind of the last thing, Milton Maderi, who was the architect, he won the American Award for Architecture that year based on his design for the Singing Tower. Oh, okay. Beautiful. Beautiful. And what's neat is Edward Bach brought in all these people from different places and different areas. They had to immerse themselves in Florida, Florida wildlife, Florida, everything to understand it. Like it was a learning experience for them so that they could depict it on the tower. So how weird do you want to get with this? Oh, we can get weird. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Give me some weird stuff. If you go to the very top of the tower, you're going to see these wonderful mosaic tiles and there are gorillas. What? On the mosaic tile. Yeah. And we can't really determine why the artisans picked gorillas. Yeah. The only thing we can think of is around turn of the century, Florida was known for having these like monkey attractions or mm-hmm. gorilla attractions. Yeah. Okay. So we think the artisans thought that Florida was like, you know, an, a jungle. Mm-hmm. And so they thought we had monkeys. Oh, uh, okay. Okay. But we, you know, we don't, but we have the monkeys on the top of the tower. You can't really tell you why that is, but it's kind of weird, right? And they're, yeah. they're purple. So I don't know why they're oh, like okay. a purplish blue color. Hey, whatever. So, <laughs> so there's your weird tip. Let's go back to the carillons okay. and the bells. Right. And I want you to tell me who actually plays those things. Sure. Okay. All right. So to talk about the bells, we do have to go back to 1929. Okay. So Edward Bach wanted to create a showpiece in the garden. And we mm-hmm. have his writings that talked about he wanted Americans to have a beautiful experience. And music and art was part of that. So that's why he put a carillon in the center of the garden so that we would always have a musical um, heritage there. So the carillon is actually the world's largest instrument. All right. And ours is 205 feet tall. The bells are at the top of the tower. And so the bells don't swing. It's not like the, you know, like Notre Dame or yeah, whatever. Right, right, like, right. Okay. And so Edward Bach put this beautiful instrument because he remembered his childhood. The largest collection of bell towers is in the lowlands of Europe. Oh, in the okay. Netherlands and Bell, and they are part of that culture. They use the bells to make hourly, you know, to tell the time. They would use the bells in times of war to announce when what's happening, oh, yeah, or even yeah, yeah. in terms of natural disaster. The bells were very integral to that culture. Mm-hmm. So Edward Bach, being raised as a Dutch, you know, immigrant, he remembered all of that. So that's why he built the beautiful tower to kind of be a reflection of his childhood. And um, his grandmother gave him a phrase. And so his grandmother, would, this would have probably been from like the 1850s. It's actually make you the world a bit better and more beautiful because you've lived in it. Mm-hmm. And that was so pivotal to him that it is actually etched in the, um, tower room, the founder's room on the um, fireplace there. And people come in every once in a while, they'll say, hey, you know, you've got a typo on your sign. Mm -hmm. That's exactly how his grandmother said it. She had that Dutch heritage. Okay. So it is make you or make, you know, kind of you and the world a bit better. Yes, right. So um, Edward Bach created the the bells and the very first bell um, is called a caroloneur was um, actually from Europe. So Edward Bach brought him over from Europe, and um, Anton Breeze was his name. Mm-hmm. And so his very first concert that he played um, was on Dedication Day, which was February 1st, 1929. And President Calvin Coolidge and First Lady Grace Coolidge were here and delivered the dedication address. The main purpose of this sanctuary and tower is to preach the gospel of beauty. Although they have been made possible through the generosity 
of Mr. Edward W. Bach, he does not wish them to be considered as a memorial or a monument. While it has been his purpose to give some expression here to his own love of the beautiful in form, in color, and in sound, he has also sought to preserve the quiet majesty of the trees, increase the display of coloring in the flowers, and combine stone and marble in the graceful lines of the tower, all in a setting surrounded by green foliage and reflected in sparkling waters over which the song of the nightingale will mingle with the music of the bells. The bells um, are at the very top, and then at like probably um, right below there is the Carillon Bell Chamber, where the Carillon where the Caroloner plays. And so mm-hmm. our current Caroloner, his name is Geert de Hollander. He is also from Belgium. Ah, okay. And um, he plays live concerts from um, October to May at one o'clock and three o'clock. During the summer months, we have recorded concerts, but we always have a formal concert at one o'clock and three o'clock, and then the bells play on the hour and half hour. So he can play anything from Lady Gaga. Get out of here. To Mozart. All right. And in fact, oh, we've been making Geert do these crazy concerts. Like we did a tribute to the 80s. Oh, my God. And then we said, so okay, cool. Geert, you can't play disco. He played the best ABBA you have ever no. heard. Oh, my God. That's amazing. So his thing, and he comes in, and he was actually here today, and his thing is if you can hum it, he can play it. Yeah. So as long as it has melody, he can play it. He's here? Is he here today? He, he stopped by. He's actually on sabbatical. Oh, we gave okay. him the summer off because he's no, a composer. No. No. Okay. And okay. probably one of the world-renowned um, carillon composers in the world. People, um, In fact, he just wrote a piece for the Peace Carillon in um, Belgium that was played around the world as oh, part as Armistice Day. Um, so there's a lot of uh, connection to the musical world that Bach Tower Garden stills foster, mm-hmm. or still fosters to this day. So we've been playing music, um, live music concerts for 92 years, and we've only had four caroloners in our history. There must be a connection here that people just love when they... Well, this most carillons are either on university campuses or oh, they're okay. in a city center. Okay. And so they can't play the bells like they can play here ah, okay. because you can't wake people up. You can't right, play right, through right, the night. So right. we, um, and plus you're surrounded by this. Who wouldn't want to come exactly. and work here, right? Exactly. Versus having right. to go to, you know, Chicago and it's yeah. right in downtown Chicago. Yeah. So this is kind place. of the pinnacle of a lot of caroloners. And we do invite guest caroloners to come and play with us. He has some um, students right now that live at um, Pinewood Estate and actually mm-hmm. are studying with him. So we are building the next generation of Caroloners. What do you recommend for visitors? Because it sounds like, you know, you have these regular concerts when he does come. I, I don't want to say in season, but kind of in season. Yeah, I right? mean, for, for Florida, that is our t- yeah. the typical season. So my recommendation is that you come and um, get your map first when you come in mm-hmm. and then make your way up to the tower. And as you make your way, you're going to say, where where's the tower? Because it was intentionally, des- our garden was intentionally designed that you wouldn't see the tower until mm-hmm. you get to the pinnacle, right? So you get to the top of Iron Mountain. 
Mm-hmm. So um, anywhere surrounding the tower is lovely to listen, but there are lots of um, really breezy oak trees up mm-hmm. at the top. And so you're going to be a lot cooler around the tower than, say, where we are actually right here. And it's really nice and shady. And uh, just sit and listen. And with Garrett, you know, he always kind of, when he comes in, I'll say, okay, Garrett, I know you should play ACDC Hell's Bells. <laughs> and he'll just look at me and be like, really? Yeah, I can awesome. play the most complicated classical music in the world and you want me to play Hell's yeah, Bells. Right, I, know. I was at that concert for the record, Hell's Bells. Um, but no, that is amazing. We definitely have to come back when he's when he is here. Yes. So thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I hope to come back soon. All right. Great. That was Erica Smith of Bock Tower Gardens sharing with us the history and inspiration of this unique sanctuary. If you'd like to visit the garden or check out their list of events, go to bocktowergardens.org. That's B-O-K-T-O-W-E-R-G-A-R-D-E-N-S.org. We'll also have a link on our website at soflowweird.com. Next, we continue our garden theme with some of Florida's botanical wonders. These next two stories are found in Charlie Carlson's book, Strange Florida. The Terea Tree On the banks of the Apalachicola River, there are trees which grow in no other part of the world. These rare botanical species, called the Florida Terea, exist naturally in a range of only about 20 square miles of North Florida. This curious tree, sometimes called the gopher wood or stinking cedar, is scientifically known as the Terea taxifolia. It is a member of the conifer group and resembles a yew tree. The Terea reaches a height of 50 feet and has a trunk diameter of about 12 inches. It can be recognized by its shiny dark green needles, which are about an inch and a half long. While the tree would be expected to produce a seed cone like other conifers, its fruit looks more like a green plum. The fruit is fleshy and yields a milky sap that when dry is sticky like glue. Though it is an attractive tree, it does give off a rather disagreeable odor, thus the nickname stinking cedar. The nearly extinct tree was discovered in 1834 by a local plantation owner named Hardy Kroom. When Mr. Kroom, an amateur botanist, could not identify the species, he contacted Dr. John Turay of Columbia College. Dr. Ture, a renowned botanist in his day, declared the tree to be a newly discovered genus. Botanists would later name the tree in honor of Dr. John Ture. Since that time, there have been other varieties of the tree found in California, China, and Japan. However, these differ from the Florida variety. The yellowish, hard-grained wood of the Terea is partially responsible for a local legend claiming that the Garden of Eden was in Florida. Believers quickly point out that the wood is gopher wood, the same as Noah used to construct the ark. In prehistoric times, the Terea probably grew worldwide. During the extreme climate changes of the Ice Age, the ancient tree almost fell into extinction. Why this tree still grows in Florida is a true mystery. In spite of its limited numbers and battles with a mysterious leaf blight, the Terea has managed to survive. Some people think that this tree may be the key to new cancer cures, although there has been no research into its medicinal properties. 
The state legislature in 1933 passed a local law which prohibited cutting of the terea. Today, scientists, through cultivation, are attempting to increase the populations of the endangered terea tree. The rare trees can be seen at the Terea State Park near Rock Bluff in Liberty County. The Saw Palmetto While most people focus on the rainforest for medicinal cures, Florida has its own pharmaceutical flora. The saw palmetto looks like a short version of the palmetto tree, but seldom grows more than about four feet high. This hardy plant has fan-like leaves growing from the ends of long, sawtooth stems. The saw palmetto mainly grows in thick scrubs along the coastal areas. Its black, berry-like fruit is a food source for a variety of native animals. Early settlers noticed that farm animals seemed healthier when fed saw palmetto berries, an observation that soon led people to try the berries as a nutritive tonic. In 1877, a scientist known as Dr. Reed researched the healthful benefits of the saw palmetto and published his findings in a St. Louis medical brief. The 1879 publication, New Preparations, also described the medicinal remedies of the plant. The saw palmetto soon found its role in a variety of tonics as a sedative and diuretic. Prior to 1900, all sorts of claims were made about the plant. People claimed that it repaired glandular systems and could heal wounds. Early black Floridians swore it could cure a variety of ills. Among Creole home remedies, saw palmetto berries ranked as one of the best cures for just about anything that ails you. The pharmaceutical benefits of the saw palmetto was nothing new to the Florida Seminoles. The Indians throughout history had been using the berries to treat dysentery, belly aches, snake bites, bug bites, and a variety of skin lesions. The strangest benefit claimed by these native people was that the berries could serve as an aphrodisiac. They professed a secret about the plant. It could enlarge breast and increase sexual desire. Some early doctors were so impressed with the saw palmetto that they recommended extensive research be done on the plant's chemicals. However, with all the claims and possibilities, the saw palmetto has not been seriously researched by mainstream science, although it's among the oldest folk medicines. In recent years, the saw palmetto has made a comeback in the alternative medicine market. Several studies have been made by herbalists who report new successes in treating urinary tract problems with palmetto berries. Many take the berries in tea form for head colds and as a stimulant. Health food stores now offer a variety of vitality tonics and other health supplements which contain extracts of the saw palmetto. While its wonders have been known for ages, this wondrous plant may still hold the keys to future cures. Know of a weird place or have a weird tale to tell? Go to SoFloWeird.com. If you want more strange Florida stories, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit us on Facebook and Instagram, where you can also support us by joining the SoFlow Weird Street Team. You can find us on social media by searching at SoFlow Weird. And please join our SoFlow Weirdos Facebook group, where we share Florida's dubious tales every week. Like what you hear on this podcast? Then consider giving us a review and please share with your friends. If you wish to support the SoFlow team on our freakish mission to entertain your insatiable appetite for weird stories, then go to our website, pick up some SoFlow swag, or buy us a coffee, and we'll give you a shout out on the show. I'm Mia Lorenzo. Thank you for listening to the SoFlow Weird Show. 
Special thanks goes to our weird announcer, Joe Johnson, and my co-host, Michelle McArdle, who also provides promotion and production assistance. This has been a Sideshow Charlie production inspired by Florida's master of the weird, Charlie Carlson. Stay weird, everybody.